Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. We have another sad example of Ontario's ailing healthcare system. Also, we're talking about LRT, allergies, retiring, Super Bowl betting, and the anti-chef joins us. Enjoy the GMH podcast. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Ready to have your blood boil a little bit? Well, there's a mom in Kitchener whose blood has been boiling, angry, irate after her daughter went to not one but two hospitals, waited 19 hours for an appendicitis surgery. And that anger boiled over again after Ontario's health minister promised to meet with her daughter. But that hasn't happened yet. Julia Malott and Angelina are our guests on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Angelina, 17 years of age and underwent this appendectomy. Julia, her mom, is a reporter with the National Post as well. Julia, Angelina, good morning. Nice to talk to you today. Julia, we'll start with you. I'm sure that when you went to the ER at St. Mary's General Hospital 10 days or so ago, that you were prepared to wait for at least a little while. I mean, that's the case at every hospital ER in this country, but... How did it turn into 19 hours and two different hospitals? You're completely right when you say we did expect to wait. Um, To be frank, I wasn't sure if it was worth going at all. Because in healthcare in Ontario in 2024, often it's it's not worth it, I find. And if it's not severe, it isn't worth your time to go and wait all night long. But... I do trust my daughter and she she said the pain was abnormal and severe. And so we we went in, we expected it to be a number of hours and it was about three and a half before we saw the doctor for the first round of tests. And by about 4 a.m., they had landed on suspecting that it was appendicitis, but they couldn't confirm this until 9 a.m. because they needed to do an ultrasound. And apparently they don't run ultrasounds in the middle of the night at the St. Mary's in Kitchener. So that was where we started on a downhill path. But by 5 a.m., we were punted out of our emergency room bed because they needed it for another patient. And so at this point, then we returned back to the waiting room and my daughter is sitting for many more hours. It was a sleepless night. And by the time we got the test completed and had the results at 10 a.m. and confirmed that it was appendicitis, we were then told that there was they can't do the surgery at St. Mary's Hospital. We'd have to go to Grand River but they couldn't transfer us to Grand River. We'd have to drive ourselves, but they couldn't take us to Grand River because there were no beds. So we would be waiting in the waiting room at St. Mary's for another day until whenever we got to the point that they could, they could take us. Wow. Angelina, let's go to you. You know, you're, you're sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting. What's going through your mind and how are you feeling now? Um, I'm feeling a lot better now. Uh, it has been 10 days since my surgery and yeah, it's been 10. Okay. Um, but yeah, I feel a lot better considering it's been a little bit over a week. I've gone back to school for mostly half days, but I'm at least back at school. And then as for sitting there, I was mostly just scared because I wanted it to stop hurting, but I also was scared of coming out of surgery and all the complications with that. Absolutely. And, and rightfully so. And everyone would be kind of wondering and worrying, you know, what uh, what is going to happen? Julia, back to you as a reporter with the National Post. You also had a chance to ask Ontario Health Minister Sylvia Jones about our ailing healthcare system. I mean, you saw it in, on full display and she responded, but she also made a promise that she has not followed up on. So tell us about that. Yeah. So as we were sitting there in the uh, in the hospital that that next day, we were getting pretty desperate. And I I do write a column for the National Post, so I have a pretty large following. And I also have a lot of connections to media and politicians. So 
my daughter and I decided that even though our case really isn't remarkable, we know that this happens frequently in Ontario healthcare, it was something we were willing to speak up against. So we took to Twitter, or, or X or whatever we're calling it these days, and it really captured the attention of Ontarians. That post has well over a million views now, and it was picked up very quickly. And as it should happen, the Minister of Health, Sylvia Jones, was scheduled the very next day to speak at the very hospital where we were to talk about funding of a catheterization lab. And when she did show up, the, the local reporters had another topic they wanted to discuss, which was, of course, our situation the day prior. So it was brought up in question period. And on television, she said that she would be reaching out to us. Actually, she said she had reached out to us, but that she would be happy to have a conversation with my daughter, which, which made us happy to know that maybe we could have some conversations here and maybe we could see some progress. But what we then found over the following week was that all of our messages to her team were left unanswered. And that was that was discouraging because I think healthcare is at the forefront of many Ontarians' minds right now. And this is something that could be handled nonpartisan. This is something that all of us would benefit and be so much better off if we could improve. And Instead, what we got was a lot of blaming, a lot of putting this on previous governments who I don't doubt have contributed to where we stand. But it doesn't change that today in 2024, it is the conservative government in power who has the ability to change where we stand on health care. In our final minute together, Julia, do you expect to hear from the minister? So interestingly enough, I went to social media again on Monday. And this was picked up by the media yesterday and today. And by mid-afternoon yesterday, we did receive a response back. So it's, I can't say whether that came by chance or if that came after more pressure, but we certainly will be looking to meet with her and hoping that we can bring about some positive change. Excellent. And it's good to hear that your daughter is feeling much better than uh, 10 days ago. That is for sure. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Julie Malotz and her daughter, Angelina. Julia is a reporter with the National Post. You can check out her column online at nationalpost.com. Angelina, 17 years of age, went to not one, but two hospitals waited a total of 19 hours for an appendectomy. And finally, uh, we're hearing just moments ago that the minister has, in fact, contacted them to uh, discuss what has happened. I'm sure you have a similar story or or a loved one or a, a colleague at work that has gone through this kind of hoops and hurdles to get the treatment that you need. Sad state of affairs. Absolutely so. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There are calls for construction of Hamilton's LRT to get going. I really do uh, wonder what is going on with Metrolinx, what's going on with council, is appropriate pressure being applied? I mean, these are all outstanding questions that I think are key for the future of this project. Good questions from Adrian Dizer, who is a guest of ours on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML yesterday. Adrian is with the local group Hamilton Light Rail. Says it's time to get things going, at least in terms of visible construction. Brad Clark is a city councillor, Ward 9 in the city of Hamilton and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Councillor Clark, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. How about yourself, sir? I'm okay. So Adrian yesterday saying, what is Council and what is Metrolinx doing with the LRT? Where are we right now? We're kind of in a hurry up and wait mode (laughs) for LRT. (laughs) Um, Metrolinx, as you know, is completely responsible for the construction of of the project. Um, I understand the design phase is being done. What we were told was that the next step would be uh, the replacement of the underground infrastructure, so the water pipes and stuff, you really don't want that 
underneath the train in case something goes wrong and you close the road, you lose the train too. Uh, so they'd like to have that those items separated. Uh, but we're really in the same position as Adrian, waiting for Metrolinx to say, okay, we're moving on with procurement because that hasn't even started. Yeah, the, the RFQ, the RFP, is there any sign as to when that might be launched? Because that, that takes time to do. It is a big job to get uh, that type of infrastructure RFP prepared to go out uh, to be tendered. Um, I I'm as frustrated as anyone else in terms of how long this is taking. Uh, one would have thought that this would have been underway uh, about a year ago. And so we really are behind schedule when it comes to getting that procurement out. Do we know why? Has Metrolinx provided any answers? Not that I'm aware of. I've not seen any explanations for the delay from Metrolinx. Are there daily or weekly or monthly conversations with officials at Metrolinx, or is it very haphazard? Um, I'm not aware of uh, regular meetings occurring uh, with our staff. Uh, I would suspect that someone is working on this, uh, but it's it's incredibly frustrating and uh, one would think that the Minister of Transportation would be asking Metrolinx a whole bunch of questions as to why isn't this underway? Because every year that goes by, you you gain all of that additional expense from inflation. And that's going to add up in the end to the point where you're going to see a much bigger number than $3.4 billion. Yeah, we talked about that on the show yesterday, too. With every day that passes, that means that this cost, and I think originally, or at least at last check, it was like $3.4 billion. With inflation and interest rates where they are, are you concerned about these rising costs associated with this project? I am concerned that the delay is increasing the cost unnecessarily. Um, but the MOU, the actual agreement with the city of Hamilton, uh, is very clear in the language that uh, the province of Ontario is responsible for any cost overrun. So there isn't a concern financially uh, for me at the city, but one would think that the province would want to save money, so let's get the RFP out as quickly as possible and get it built as quickly as possible, which would lower the additional cost, obviously. Absolutely. Brad Clark is a councillor for Board 9 with the City of Hamilton and our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. You mentioned the underground work, the, the, the pipes, the, the sewer system, all that stuff that needs to be underneath. Has that already begun? Um, I do not believe so. I'm not aware of any construction underway at the moment. Um, but I, I believe Metrolinx would be moving with that first uh, to, to prepare the way for the actual real work. Is there going to be a point in time, and maybe it's this spring or maybe it's during the summer or later on this year, where council says, hey, Metrolinx, we need an update on what's happening? Yeah, I think we're kind of past that point. Um, we need an answer now as to what's going on. And, and the public deserves to know what's going on. It's it's one thing to promote LRT is coming and, and get people all excited. It's another thing to make sure that everyone is fully informed as to where the project is, what the timelines are. Um, and we need that, in my humble opinion, we need that reporting much more frequently. Yeah, that transparency is key for sure. When it comes to the operation of the LRT, we know a decision is going to be made. I think it's next month. Um, whether we're going the, the private contractor route or whether the HSR slash 
ATU Local 107 is going to do it. Are you leaning one way or another? Yes, I'm leaning towards um, uh, ATU or HSR um, uh, running the operations. And my explanation isn't as much about the labor relations aspect, all that, that is a part of it. The fact is that the city of Hamilton will be responsible for the operational costs. And I'm concerned that if we're not controlling the operations, then how do we control those costs? So if the third party comes in and is running this 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 project, then we're simply going to get a bill for the operations and there's nothing to ensure that we're running it efficiently. Are there many like minds on council to go that route? I, I honestly do not know at the moment. Um, I suspect some are leaning that way, and, and I know of a few that are pretty um, solid in their support for the private sector, simply because they don't want to create any delays in the project. They want the project to move forward as soon as possible, and Metrolinks and other projects has done it this way, where the the RFP goes out to a third party, and they do everything. They build it, they they get the trains, the rail, and then they operate it and they maintain it, the life cycle. Uh, so we're on the hook for operational costs, no matter what model is used. I'm simply suggesting it would be prudent that we run the project so that we can control the operational costs. Looking forward to hearing that debate at Council sometime soon. Councillor Clark, very appreciative of your time this morning. Have a great day. You too. Take care. And as Brad Clark, he is the councillor for Board 8 with the City of Hamilton, chiming in on LRT, the city's favorite acronym. Not much of an update because we're waiting for Metrolinks to say, all right, this is what's happening. We'll hopefully get that update sometime very soon. Coming up, many of you listening right now think you will have no shot at being able to retire with enough money to get you by. We're going to hone in on a report that is out just in advance of Pension Awareness Day. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This is pretty exciting news. Researchers at McMaster University have discovered a new cell that remembers your allergies and they've pinpointed some potential therapeutic approaches that could eliminate or repurpose it. Dr. Josh Koenig is an assistant professor at the McMaster Immunology Research Center at Mac, also the co-lead of this research and joins us in studio. Dr. Koenig, good morning. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Um, you don't seem very excited. <laughs> uh, well, it's a little early, but uh, you know, I'm getting there. Um, you, were you looking for this cell or did you just happen to find it and say, wow, look what we found? Hey, it's a great question. You know, we've been kind of working on this problem for around 15 years. So it's something that, you know, not specifically this particular paper, but the whole idea of how the immune system remembers that you're allergic, it, it's, it's a big problem. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if you think about another condition, let's say cancer, you have a disease progression that's happening there. You know, cancer's growing. And so your system's trying to fight back. But in allergy, you know, people try to avoid the food. They don't eat it. So then the immune system has to have some way that it knows that you're supposed to be allergic to that thing, Hmm. which is kind of counterintuitive. We don't tend to think of things that way. And so, you know, in another world, the immune system could forget, right? And so we started asking, well, why is this the case? And it turns out that the immune system has this memory. And it's literally held in cells. We have these cells called memory cells that do this. And so other folks had described this. And so, you know, after doing a little bit of work, we started thinking, well, you know, is there a type of memory cell that 
holds this memory. And that was kind of what led us to start doing this work. Hmm. And, you know, was it a surprise? You know, looking back at it, it's so easy to say, no, it's, it's not a surprise. Right. But as you're doing it, like I remember talking to the other uh, lead at ALK Abelow, the pharmaceutical company that we work with. And, you know, month over month, I was saying, you know, I think I'm starting to believe this. And then, the, you know, the next month I go, you know, Peter, I, I think I'm starting to believe this. Right. And once you've exhausted every other possible option that could be, you, you, you eventually say, you know what? I think this is what's going on. There's a specific type of cell that we found hasn't been described before. And it's what's doing this. How long did this process take? Well, so, you know, this whole paper, I would say, kind of we started getting the inklings in maybe 2020 and 2021, uh, you know, pandemic times that uh, this might be what's going on. And, and you know, you don't you don't assume that you've discovered a new cell. You mm -hmm. mostly assume that what you found, somebody else has seen and somebody else has reported upon. And so you look and you look and you look and you, you know, start crossing off different hypotheses. But, you know, uh, then over the course of, you know, all the way to the first time we submitted the paper to be published was in December of 2022. It takes a long time. You know, science is super rigorous. They mm. put you through a lot to make sure that you're right. right. And, you know, once we've defended off all these questions, then, it, you know, they kind of go, oh, well, I guess you're right. I guess you're, I guess you're right. I guess you found a new cell. <laughs> yeah. So is this memory cell, does it only remember allergies or does this pertain to other things in the body? You know, that's a fantastic question. And the way that science kind of works is I'm going to say, yeah, it probably has other roles. Mm. We just don't know what they are right now. Okay. Because, you know, we discovered it in this very specific context and us and there's actually another paper in the same issue of the of the journal that we published. Um, we're the only two groups that really knew about this thing for, for some time, right? And now that we've published these findings, I'm sure that we've triggered off a bunch of other scientists who go, you know what, that probably applies here too. And mm. some have already told me about it. I can't say much more than that because uh, they would probably be pretty unhappy <laughs> if I did uh, because, you know, there's always the competition element of other sure. people trying to do the work. But um, I think we're going to find that this has bigger implications across diseases, across... Wow other places. Pretty amazing stuff. Researchers at McMaster University discovering a new cell that remembers your allergies. We're in discussion with jo Dr. Josh Koenig, uh, assistant professor at the McMaster Immunology Research Center. So when it comes to treating people with allergies, how far down the road are we projecting this could potentially help them? You know, that, that's a fantastic question. I, I wish I had a very solid answer for you. Tomorrow. Tomorrow, <laughs> yeah, I, if only, right? Yeah. But what I can tell you is that um, in response to what we've shown, uh, the pharmaceutical company that we're working, that we have worked with, ALK Avalo uh, from Denmark, and other pharmaceutical companies are moving drugs into trials that would be a reasonable candidate based on the cell that we found. So hmm. we know that it has certain characteristics and they have drugs that they've been working on that go, well, actually our drug targets some of these characteristics. So there will be a wave of new drugs that go into trials. Right. And that's really what we want to have happen because, you know, at the university, we have some resources to do these trials, but, you know, pharmaceutical companies, that's where a lot of the resources to, you know, make these new drugs and put them into big clinical trials and figure out if they work. That's where that is. Hmm. If that works, one of these drugs then you're looking at a five to 10 year regulatory process because they have to make sure that it's safe. They right. have to make sure that it works, but then it could be on the shelves. Hmm. So 
my, you know, best case scenario, you're looking at a five to 10 year time frame. But wow. if we have to make something new because those drugs don't ultimately end up working, that's when you start looking at a longer time frame because, you know, we have to make the drug. We have to find like, you know, we've just discovered this cell. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of questions about how it works still that we're trying to figure out. And we're, right. you know, we're working on that really hard. Wow. So uh, potentially 10, maybe 15 years, maybe 20 years, depending on, you know, how things are going. Mm-hmm. Uh, if something comes on the market, whenever that is. How big of an impact would this have? Because there's a lot of people with allergies. It, it's massive. So, you know, in Canada, population of 30, uh, 30 million people approximately, there's 3 million allergic people. So it's it's wow. a huge, huge number. In the United States, there's 100 million people with allergies. And then when you start looking globally, I mean, the number just skyrockets mm-hmm. from there. And, and, you know, people have been asking me, is this just the allergies that we've been looking at, which, you know, we looked at dust, we looked at some pollens, we looked at peanut. We really think it's central to most allergies. Hmm. And you know, the impact could be very broad and very wide ranging. It's very heartening to me as a scientist to see people wondering and asking these things. And, and, you know, hopefully we can convert. Tremendous stuff. Uh, Congratulations on this. Best of luck down the road. And thanks for coming in today as well. Thank you so much. Dr. Josh Koenig is an assistant professor, McMaster Immunology Research Center. They have found a new cell unbelievably, that remembers your allergies, and they pinpointed some potential therapeutic approaches that could eliminate or repurpose it, which is a pretty phenomenal stuff. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, the Financial Services Regulatory Authority of Ontario's second annual Pension Awareness Day is going to arrive on February 15th, but there's a new report out that shows one in five of us, one in five Ontarians, think we will never be able to retire. That's sad. Andrew Fung is an executive vice president's financial services regulatory authority of Ontario and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Andrew, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rig. I'm good. Thank you. 56% of respondents, there are so many golden nuggets in this report, 56% of respondents say they have no idea how much money they need to retire comfortably. And my question is, how can you plan for a target you can't see? And that's really a theme throughout this report. Yeah, you you really cannot plan, but you can always start early. Uh, one of the things that you quoted just now is that 20% of the people think that they will never be able to retire. And, and that's sad, but understandably so, because a lot of people actually don't start thinking about pensions or savings for retirement until very, very late in life. And that's the situation you find some people are in, because retirement to most people seems a lifetime away. But before you know it it's right here in your face i know the earlier the better when is the ideal time to start well our survey actually says uh uh 60 percent uh, of the people believe that the right uh, age to start thinking about retirement setting money aside is in their 20s i have two grown boys in the late 20s and i've started nagging about savings for retirement <laughs> in in during their teens um and i think the earlier the better really uh because if you start early uh the matters become less daunting um i'm an actuary by training i've done some small calculations if you save up a cup of coffee or a fancy bubble tea a day that's like six seven bucks a day over a span of 35 years you will actually have over hundred fifty thousand dollars. so start early uh have a plan that's half the half the better one i know we're we're trying to make strides when it comes to financial literacy is that a big part of it not enough canadians are financially literate uh, th- that's that's true in in general and particularly in pensions because pensions is a complex uh, matter. Um, 
you know, our survey actually also you know shows that about sixty percent of the people knows more about their favorite TV show than benefits of their pension plans, and and that's the one of the one of the uh, reasons why we actually have the pension awareness day, uh, because you know for people who are starting out young, you know, in the twenties or so, looking for a job, most people are trying to you know just focus on the salaries, the kind of uh, uh, health benefits they get, the number of vacations they get, but rarely would they ask, you know, what kind of retirement savings vehicle that potential employer offers. Um, and so that's really the, the genesis of a pension awareness days. For those people who are in the workforce, sometimes they don't even know what their company offers. Uh, very often companies will, will have a pension plan, but most people don't even realize how valuable they are. Um, so our our message is that if you if you belong be, is a member of the pension plan, speak with your HR about the value of the pension plans. And if you are an employer uh, who provides uh, pension coverage for your members, these are great um, talent attraction and retention tools and make the best out of it and communicate out to your um, employees about how valuable they are. Last question for you. we got about a minute. 88% of the people in your survey said more should be done to encourage people to save for retirement. Do you have any ideas? Yes, that's exactly the reasons why we have a pension awareness day, because the more people talk about it, uh, the more uh, there's awareness about the needs for retirement savings. Pension is just part of it. Uh, it's a hope that uh, retirement savings or savings for retirement becomes part of our DNA. Uh, people talk about grocery shopping. People talk about you know where to go on vacation day in and day out. Uh, people shop around for deals. Uh, people should also be talking about you know savings for retirement. Um, it's our hope that you know a pension awareness day is every day in everyone's life. Mr. Fung, thank you so much for your time this morning, and uh, we'll certainly uh, spread the news on Pension Awareness Day coming up later on this month. Thank you, Rick, for having me. Dr. Andrew Fung is an Executive VP, Financial Services Regulatory Authority of Ontario. The poll also found 81% are worried about covering everyday costs like groceries, rent, mortgage, of course. And 44% say current costs of living prevents them from saving for retirement. We know those budget pressures are certainly very real. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There is new research out from the American Gaming Association, and it shows that a record 68 million American adults, about one in every four adults, are expected to bet $23 billion on Super Bowl 58. It's amazing. And that is a 35% increase from the $16 billion that was wagered last year. And 46% of those bets will be placed online or using apps. Now, most bettors are going to put money down on which team is going to win or how many points are going to be scored on Sunday or which player is going to win the MVP award. But there's another category that has gained popularity over the last number of years, and that is the novelty bet category, which allows for non-football fans to get into the game. Last year alone, nearly 10% of the Super Bowl bets that were placed on ProLine Plus were novelty bets. So let's get into it with Tony Batanti, Director of Media Relations with Ontario Lottery and Gaming Corporation. Tony, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm fantastic. And you know what? Those stats that you you just you just mentioned are incredible. Now, I know we're not going to have the $32 billion worth of bets in Canada, but... Uh, you're right. If you're not a sports fan, but you, you know what, you want to get into the game and you want to just place a bet, you can go into the novelty section. And then we're looking at everything from coin toss, 
the music, the national anthem, the Usher concert, uh, even Gatorade. What color Gatorade is going to be dumped on the winning team? And now that we have legalized sports betting in Canada for the last you know few years, uh, people want to get into it. And it's exciting because there's so many different things, whether it is betting on the coin toss, betting on the national anthem, betting on you know how many songs are going to be sung during yeah. the halftime show. It really gets, as I mentioned before, the non-football fan really excited. For example, on the coin toss alone, okay, it's, it's really a 50-50 bet. It really is. Mm-hmm. Um, but almost half of all the pro line plus novelty bets were on the coin toss. And... 47% of the people got it right. It was tails last year and about two thirds, 65% bet that the team who won the coin toss would also win the Super Bowl. And they were right. The national anthem. I know the Americans go nuts on the, on the national anthem. And, you know, some of them are over the top. Some of them are a bit more subdued. We've seen it all. Uh, last year, our pro-line betters, 52% picked correctly that uh, on the over on the length of the national anthem. That means that it, it did definitely go over the, the time allotted that they had for it as well, too. So it's always a big superstar. Yeah, um, it's, it's actually Reba McIntyre. It is. Okay, sorry. Yeah. So you know what? Mm, even though I can't bet, I think Reba's going to hold it in check. So I think it's <laughs> I think it's going to be under. And then and then this year we have we have Usher as as the halftime show. And last year uh, when Rihanna sang, fifty two percent of the people correctly picked the over on nine point five songs sung in the ta- in the halftime show. And she she and she went just slightly over on that as well too. So um, and oh and here's one more. This is the one I love the, the most though too is the Gatorade or the liquid. So we always assume it's Gatorade because Gatorade is the big sponsor. It's right. always in those jugs. Um, and what's the color? So last year, a majority of the people predicted the yellow, green, lime, that concoction uh, was the color for that was going to be poured on the Gatorade. Unfortunately, they were wrong. And those that chose the color purple, only 11% chose the color purple, and they were the winners. But that was the first time the color purple, the color purple Gatorade, was used since 2012. Um, and this year, it looks right now, it looks like the odds on favor is still purple, uh, with orange coming in close and red and pink coming in close as well, too. And I'm going to tease it a little bit because most of the bets that happen, happen uh, on the Friday, Saturday, and the morning of Super Bowl as well, too. So we are working on some uh, Taylor Swift bets as well, too. I can't tell you which ones are going to be yet, but we have, you know what, the Taylor Swift effect, whether you love her or you don't love her, uh, is going to be an impact on this year's game, has been an impact all season long on on the NFL, too. So we're going to get into that as well, too. Um, and we're going to have some uh, some Taylor Swift bets on there as well, too, in our novelty section. So we're going to have a lot of fun with this. I was going to ask you about the Taylor Swift angle, and you certainly beat me to the punch, and I'm not surprised <laughs> that you're striking while the iron is hot as well. It should be a lot uh, of fun. Also, I'm, when and, I'm, and, I'm, sorry, and I'm still waiting to see what those bets are, too. Yeah. Like, and, and again, I don't I don't work with, with the sports analysts, but they're working on some crazy things, too. I think one of them is, is she going to be there on time or not, too, because she has to come from Japan. <laughs> That's just that's just my guess. I I don't know. <laughs> that would be a good one for sure. Uh, our listeners can also uh, grab the ProLine Plus app and they can um, participate in a free contest that is on 
uh, ProLine Plus as well. And yeah. the winner is going to get a couple of tickets to Super Bowl 59 in New yeah. Orleans, which should be yeah. a lot of fun. Easy to do as well. I did my picks earlier this morning. They're so Thank fun. You and I, I, yeah, I encourage I encourage our listeners to do the same. Tony, we'll have to leave it there. Enjoy the game. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks, Rick. Have a great day. And also, uh, thanks to all the people in Hamilton Listen as well. Tony Batanti is the Director of Media Relations with Ontario Lottery and Gaming Corporation. And you look at the novelty bets, those really non-football bets that get the non-football fans interested and engaged in what is happening on the screen or if you're listening on the radio and just on the on the taylor swift kind of section of this which is just ballooned i mean prop bets in the super bowl have been a huge driver of dollars both legal and illegal for for eons but now you add in a mega star on the music scene and there are some doozies out there here's just a few of just the taylor swift related prop bets you can make which taylor swift song will first be said as a football related reference by tony romo so cbs is broadcasting the game tony romo is the football analyst in the booth and the options are bad blood blank space karma or shake it off and during a football broadcast you can kind of in your mind hear tony or any other person say you know these two teams have bad blood right and you know if you pick that you would win the prop bet <laughs> it's it's pretty interesting another one is will swift be said by either team during a play call so when the quarterback gets up to the line of scrimmage is he saying like peyton manning famously said omaha or will one of the quarterbacks say swift that would be very interesting right now it's at plus 1000 so you put a dollar on it you win 10 and here's another one which will be higher chiefs total super bowl touchdowns or taylor swift grammy awards and the list goes on and on and on it is a lot of fun and it does bring in a lot of non-football fans as well you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml well there's a man who is gaining fame on youtube for making chef inspired recipes cooking dishes that were brought to us by famed chefs like Julia Child, Jacques Pepin, Anthony Bourdain, and Gordon Ramsay. His name is Jamie Tracy, known as the Anti-Chef, and joins us now on GMH. Jamie, good morning. How are you? Good morning, and thank you for making my dreams come true there with that Weird Al song to lead me in. <laughs> Pleasure is all ours. How <laughs> did you settle on cooking chef-inspired recipes on a YouTube channel? Oh, well, imagine, you know, the last guy on earth who should have a cooking show starting a cooking show. I couldn't cook. I was living in Toronto at the time. You know, I was working in the film industry. I wanted to make more of my low budget films with a couple of friends. And I was running out of ideas. And Hugh, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, kind of hinted, you know, you're not very good in the kitchen. You should kind of suck. Why don't you film yourself cooking? Because it's <laughs> it's funny when I watch that and it would be funny for other people to watch it and make a weekly YouTube cooking show out of that. So, um, yeah, I just, I got to give her the credit for that one. But for me, that was just the perfect excuse to continue to make quotes, you know, unquote films on like a week weekly basis. And I just kind of picked up from there. Well, now you have 300,000 plus followers on your YouTube channel and you can check it out <laughs> as well. Anti chef on YouTube. Uh, when did it start to gain real traction? So um, I'm living in New York now, and it was around the time I moved here. 
um, where it just kind of just started picking up steam and it hasn't really stopped. It's been a six year journey where, you know, it was just myself and my mom watching and then it, it's slowly picked up steam where there's a pretty solid fan base now. It's it's really fun. I'd say so. Now, you said you started this when you were in Toronto. Were you born there or were you born somewhere else? I was, I was born uh, down the street from you, uh, near Guelph. Oh, wow. And that's where I grew up. And then I was living in Toronto. And through my wife's uh, really cool career, I've been able to travel Europe and the States. And that's where I am now. But uh, yeah, this all started in Toronto in the, the Greek town. Wow, pretty cool. I see on your Instagram channel that you had a bit of a mishap in the kitchen yesterday. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Stay away from mandolins, any sharp. I should be staying away from any sharp objects, really. But this was a, a vegetable slicer for the food processor. And, you know, I've gone six years without a mis an injury like this. So, well, you know, nothing a little glue won't solve. There you go. That's a, that's a pretty good run of not, uh, you know, cutting off an appendage. <laughs> I, yeah, honestly, I'm shocked I made it this far. <laughs> Jamie Tracy is the anti-chef. Check out his YouTube channel, Anti-Chef. Also on Instagram, Anti-Chef Jamie. What was the first thing years ago? What was the first thing you cooked on the channel and how did it turn out? I attempted a thing called, I just picked a random recipe from a cookbook in the kitchen. I just said, I'm going to make this. I opened the, the, the page and it was called green pancakes with lime butter. And it, you know, kind of seems simple enough, but it was a, it was a journey. There, there was lots of ups and downs with some of the most simplest tasks like wilting spinach or discovering what white pepper was. I didn't think it was a thing. And uh, somehow I made it in the end. And that's kind of the, the lesson I learned is if I, if I don't give up with these videos, I always make it in the end. <laughs> yeah, what have you learned about yourself in the kitchen? I've, well, I've learned that I, I had no interest in cooking. I, I, I didn't care. Uh, <laughs> and 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 since I've started this show, I've fallen in love with learning about how, you know, food from different cultures, learning how to cook, falling in love with the process and into something that I had no idea I would have any interest in. And now I'm obsessed. Mm -hmm. I, I love learning all about this stuff. And uh specifically with this French food, because there's so much technique involved with that, that once you kind of nail down a couple of those techniques, you're off, you're off cooking up some pretty fantastic food. Got about 45 seconds left. What is the best thing you've made? And what was it also the tastiest thing? I'm going to give it to the French onion soup. Ooh. It's not, it's very few ingredients, but really big flavors. And I think this is good for anyone out there that if you don't have a lot of skill level in the kitchen, this is something that you can make. It's pretty straightforward. It's pretty easy. And it's going to knock your socks off. <laughs> Great time of the year to do it as well. Jamie, really appreciate your time. Best of luck with this going forward. Thank you for having me. And uh, bon appetit. Right back at you. Jamie Tracy is the anti-chef. Check him out on YouTube. Anti-chef. Tens of thousands of followers and subscribers. And also on Instagram. Anti-chef Jamie. And some of the stuff that he's cooked. Like, wow, you watch the videos. I mean, this is highly technical things, and he's knocking it out of the park, and I'm sure it tastes amazing as well. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode, and make sure you rate and review.